This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a senior reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. My co-host Mark Rotella is out this week, so I'm here on my own to bring you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Charlie Jane Anders discusses her new novel, All the Birds in the Sky. Then PW Senior News Editor Calvin Reed reports on publishing in Cuba. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly Bestseller List, powered by Nielsen Bookscan. And for this, I'm joined by PW Features Editor Carolyn Juris. Hi, Carolyn. Hey, Rose. How you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing very well, thank you. It's always lovely to have you on the show. Um, So give us a sense of what the highlights are on this week's bestseller list. Okay, Um, January and February can be kind of quiet, but we have some big debuts this week. The uh, the number one book in the country is a book called Low Carb Essentials, and you can probably figure out what that's about, Yeah. by George Stella. uh, That sold 25,000 print units in paperback, which is, you know, not bad. Yeah, that's very impressive. Uh, We have also got Morningstar, uh, which kind of falls into your territory, Mm -hmm. that is... uh, Closing out a trilogy by Pierce Brown. That debuted at number three in hardcover fiction uh, with more than 13,000 print units sold, which is really good. He's been on a pretty steep upward trajectory with these first week sales. Uh, his first book, Red Rising, um, sold about 1,000 its first week out, which is perfectly fine for a debut author. Uh, second book did 5,000. So uh, interest seems to be picking up. Well, we gave it a starred review, and obviously we can't take single-handed credit (laughs) for for putting it up there, but uh, we said it's an excellent closing book for the trilogy and uh, that Brown's vivid first-person prose puts the reader right at the forefront of this sort of revolution that's taking place out in the the outer planets of the solar system. Uh, And there's impassioned speeches, broken families, engaging battle scenes that don't shy away from the gore as this interstellar civil war comes to a most satisfying conclusion. Sounds sounds like a must read. Yeah, so that's definitely one that the fans of the trilogy are going to have been looking out for. Excellent. Um, Then we also have kind of a 180 from that, a book called Turning the Tables by a former Real Housewife of New Jersey. Mm -hmm. Um, Her name is Teresa Giudice. Mm -hmm. I believe my Italian is not that great. she comes in at number four in hardcover nonfiction. She's actually written a few cookbooks before, um, all Italian cooking. This is her memoir. She uh, has just finished serving a 15-month prison sentence for fraud. All right. So uh, this book debuted a lot higher than any of her others. So I guess people are more interested in the tell-all aspect, perhaps, than the uh, kitchen confidential aspect. It, it's the recipe for prison wine, I'm I'm sure. See, that could be useful. <laughs> What what else is there? Um, any highlights from the, the children's section? Yeah, we've got um, another pretty high debut. This is a fantasy novel, a second in a series by Victoria Aveyard. Uh, this book is called Glass Sword, number two in children's front list fiction. Uh, her first book in the series, Red Queen, is also on the list uh, at number 13, and that's up about 84% from last week. So she's... Uh, definitely building her audience there. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've also got back in adult. Uh, this is kind of a fun one. This is not a new book. It came out uh, at the end of last year for the love by Jen Hatmaker, but it had kind of fallen off the list as books do. It did, it sure. did pretty well, uh, but it's back this week at number 15 uh, up 68% over last week with about 4,500 print units sold. And the story there is uh, Jen Hatmaker is a Christian parenting blogger, and she's very funny, uh, has a huge fan base on social media. And when the book first came out, apparently she was getting a lot of messages from people saying, you know, they wish they could afford her book, they really wanted to read it, and then other people chiming in saying, wow, I would love to buy you a book. Mm -hmm. And so they 
managed to get the two together through um, a retail platform called Givingtons, where you could, I guess, buy a book for yourself and then buy one for somebody else. And they sent books to more than 2,000 fans that way. Wow. So uh, it was a February promotion. The book is called For the Love. So it was kind of a Valentine's themed, mm-hmm. you know. But what a, what a great way to bring your fans together. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like it was a real success. Um, and it, it's nice to see somebody kind of walking the walk, too. Yeah, definitely. And um, it, this isn't really the, the time of year for parenting books, um, but I've been surprised to see a whole bunch of them on, on the list. Uh, usually I, I think of those as um, coming out more, more tied to the school year, maybe, when people are thinking a lot about kids, um, or in the summer when kids are home. Uh, but uh, I, I saw three of them on the hardcover bestseller list and thought that uh, was a little interesting. Yeah, that's right. And they're, they're all pretty different, I think. So the one that made our list in the top 25 is Untangled by Lisa Damore. And it's uh, targeted especially toward uh, parents of teenage girls. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that did um, pretty well, more than 4,000 units. And uh, we've we've got a review of that one. We say it's a clear-sighted parenting guide um, that offers a hopeful, helpful new way for parents to talk about and with teenage girls. Uh, so that's uh, nice to, to see up at the top. Uh, maybe only useful for a subset of teenage girls. I find a lot of these books are have a very specific idea of what teen girls are like, and they're not always... They're not monolithic, accurate, that's for sure. <laughs> but, um, you know, as, as long as... Uh, I, I think parents of teenagers often feel like they'll take anything. Exactly. <laughs> and then uh, a little bit further down, um, down in the in the 40s, so off of your top 25 list there, at uh, number 40, we have The Collapse of Parenting, How We Hurt Our Kids When We Treat Them Like Grown-Ups uh, by Leonard Sachs. This is obviously a very contrarian book. Um, our Our reviewer wasn't fond of it, said it's an unpersuasive treatise positioned firmly in an earlier generation's mores. It laments the culture of disrespect and the massive transfer of authority from parents to kids. And that's the the author's words there. Um, And we say that Sachs offers more old school philosophy than practical guidance. That makes a bit of sense. He's been doing this for a while. I know he has two or three earlier parenting titles. So um, I haven't read the book, but it's possible that the ideas were formed in an earlier time, and he's carrying them through. And then uh, a little further down um, on the list, at number 43 is The Importance of Being Little, What Preschoolers Really Need from Grown-Ups by Erica Christakis. And uh, she's a preschool teacher and also worked with the Yale Child Study Center. And this is a sophisticated observation-based argument, according to our review, for viewing young children primarily as just that and not as adults in training. So it's interesting to see these two different approaches to why you should treat kids like kids and let kids be kids. Um, one of one of them is much more about this authoritarian view of kids can't handle the responsibilities of being grown up. We shouldn't try to teach them that they get to run around and do stuff on their own and be independent. Right. Um, and then the other one is about acknowledging children as individuals and um, recognizing them as, as being full persons just the way they are rather than blank slates. Right. And I think it also, that book um, talks about the importance of play, mm-hmm. which yeah, seems to get lost quite a bit. <laughs> there's a lot There's a lot in here. Um, we say Christakis encourages caregivers and teachers to offer children stories worth hearing, conversations worth having, and, as you say, rich contexts for play. Uh, and uh, we say this is a, it's a very powerful and rewarding book. So I, I could see those two you know, really getting some interesting compare and contrast stuff going. Uh, There were just a couple of other things that I wanted to note on our list, a couple of books that we gave starred reviews to um, that have popped up. uh, And uh, West of Eden at number 33 uh, by Gene Stein is an oral history delving behind the scenes of Hollywood's most illustrious bloodlines. So you get these Hollywood royal families. Oh, like uh, the Barrymores, uh, maybe? Mm-hmm. Yeah, in, in this case, the Warners, the Doheny's, the Garland's. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, Stein kind of grew up immersed in the company of these families. And uh, we, we loved this book, gave it a starred review. Um, and so that Stein's exhaustive research and brand new interviews 
make this an invaluable resource for any student of pop culture or indeed of 20th century American history. Huh, I didn't think there was anything left to say about Hollywood. Well, you know, we get these new Hollywood books all the time, and uh, um, there actually seems to just be an insatiable appetite for them. So even if they're not super new, there might be a little nugget or two of novelty in there. And it's always interesting to get that insider view. Oh, sure. And then also on the historical side, but in fiction, at number 25, we have Georgia, a novel of Georgia O'Keeffe by Don Tripp. Uh, and uh, we say that American artist Georgia O'Keeffe blazes across the pages in Tripp's tour de force about this indomitable woman whose life was both supported and stymied by the love of her life, photographer and art promoter Alfred Stieglitz. So um, this is more on the fictionalized side, obviously, but uh, with a lot of history to it. And uh, we say that the relationship between Stieglitz and O'Keefe is poignantly drawn, and Tripp has really hit her stride here, bringing to life one of the most remarkable artists of the 20th century with veracity, heart, and panache. Do you know whether she's written any other historical fiction? Uh, that's a really good question, actually. Um, I don't see anything mentioned in the review. I'm not familiar with her personally. Uh, but uh, if not, the, this certainly gives her a good springboard to yeah, to launch into doing it. Um, so uh, those are some of the highlights of the list for me. And uh, was there anything else that you wanted to touch on? Oh, there's a... This is an interesting one for uh, hardcover nonfiction. You might not expect to find Jhumpa Lahiri there. This oh, that's is true. her first work of nonfiction uh, for the novelist. It's called In Other Words. And what that refers to is she had kind of a lifelong love affair with the Italian language mm -hmm. and had never quite mastered it. So she went, I believe, and lived in Italy uh, to become fluent. And this book was originally written in Italian. When I uh, first started reading about it, and it mentioned that there was a translator. I thought, how odd, because she writes in English. But in fact, this was originally an Italian language book that was translated uh, by Anne Goldstein, who's an editor at The New Yorker. So this is kind of a memoir of her, this you know person who's a, a beautiful writer in English learning to use her words in another language. What a fascinating way of doing it, that she didn't even translate it herself or, or write a second version of it herself. Um, I suppose if you're working with your own words, the temptation to rewrite sure. would be very strong. Sure. Um, and I think this way she was really, in this case, you know, an Italian language writer. Mm -hmm. Huh. That's fascinating. What a, what a great project to embark on. Yeah. Uh, and again, just getting back to the numbers, that is number 16 in hardcover nonfiction. Great. Well, it sounds like there's a lot to look out for this week. And uh, thank you so much for coming on to talk about it. Thanks, Rose. It was fun. I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Charlie Jane Anders tells us how the world might end or not. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Jay Kenji Lopez-Alt. I'm the author of The Food Lab, Better Home Cooking Through Science, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, I've got Charlie Jane Anders on the line. Her new book is All the Birds in the Sky. Hi, Charlie Jane. I'm so glad you could join us. Hey, I'm so happy to be here. So tell us a little bit about this novel, which is about the end of the world. How does the world end? Well, I mean, first of all, it's sort of about the end of the world. This is one of the things that I actually kind of talked to the publisher about because they wanted to put the A word, you know, apocalypse into uh -huh. the book description. And I was like, well, it's sort of an apocalypse. It's like a Buffy-style apocalypse. Um, they're trying to stop the end of the world. And honestly, to the extent that there is an apocalypse in this book, uh, it's I guess it comes in two forms. The first form is just that um, the, the stuff that we see happening in the real world right now just keeps getting worse. Uh, environmental problems and, um, and other sorts of systemic problems with our society and our planet keep getting worse and people believe that the world is ending. It's based on their understanding of what's going on around them. And there are characters who say, no, the world's not ending. It's just that we're going through a, a rough patch or a transition or something. And then the second way that the world is threatened with destruction is that certain people see the world getting into a more dangerous state and decide to do something drastic to try and save the situation. And as often happens in real life, sometimes when you try to fix problems, you actually create bigger problems or have potentially bigger problems. 
Um, so tell us a little bit about the two main characters and the way that they kind of play off of each other. Yeah, um, All the Birds in the Sky is a book about a witch and a mad scientist. And it's sort of a relationship story about magic and science and these two very different people learning to understand each other. Um, so Patricia is the witch and she's she can talk to animals. Uh, she has other sort of magical powers and she has sort of a kind of a connection to nature in general. And uh, she grows up surrounded by people who don't really understand her and she's very kind of she has a lot of issues from her childhood that kind of come from not being understood and lawrence uh, the mad scientist is you know he's a techie he builds a supercomputer when he's in junior high school when he's even younger than that he builds a, a miniature time machine that can go forward in time two seconds and he's uh, also someone who feels very misunderstood as a kid for sort of opposite reasons um He's just sort of seen as this weird, nerdy kid who doesn't like to get out and have outdoors adventures or whatever and just wants to stay indoors and work on his computer. And um, they sort of find each other in middle school and become friends. And because they're like the two outcasts at this somewhat stifling uh, junior high school, they're the only ones who can kind of talk to each other. And uh, even though they're kind of opposites in a lot of ways, they're kind of the two outcasts as you know, not particularly great school. Got it. So around when is this set? Is it something like the present day? I mean, the parts where they're in middle school, I mean, the whole thing is kept kind of vague, but the parts where they're in middle school are either present or very near future or possibly a little bit in the past. But uh, then we jump ahead 10 years and the parts where they're in their early 20s and they're living in San Francisco are very clearly a bit in the future, like things have changed. Um, the parts where they're in junior high school, we talk about Facebook and things like that. Sure. And then by the time that they're living in San Francisco, there's no more Facebook and it's been replaced by something else. And a lot of other stuff has changed and it's clearly a little bit further into the future. Gotcha. Okay. So um, they, they have this adolescent meeting or pre-adolescent meeting um, and, and bonding, and then they come back together in San Francisco. How, how do you connect a witch and a mad scientist? And, and, and what interested you about playing with these two concepts side by side? Yeah, I mean, originally I thought of it as just sort of a meeting of genres. And I've always been fascinated by genres and how they function together and how they how they do different things. And, you know, I do this spoken word show in San Francisco where I bring together authors from as many different genres as I can each time and have them alongside each other. And so I've always been fascinated by different genres and how they interact uh, and, and how you can kind of place them side by side and see their various strengths and their various mechanisms. But the more I got into it, the less I thought of it as a story about genres. And the more I thought of it as, like I said, a relationship story. And to the extent that there was something beyond just like the characters themselves interacting, um, I thought of it as a story about nature and technology. And I am kind of, for possibly obvious reasons, I'm obsessed with whether nature and technology can coexist, whether uh, we can actually develop technology in a way that is good for the natural world and that makes this planet still habitable for us and for other living creatures. And this is something that I obsess about a lot. And so the idea of having one character who is more connected to nature and one character who is more of a technologist and who likes to build devices and invent machines and, and gadgets felt like an interesting way of talking about that dichotomy and kind of exploring it and hopefully subverting it a little bit. Uh, and so that was kind of what I got into as the book kind of grew out from that original premise. So... The witch and the mad scientist are also, in some ways, uh, the kind of traditional male and female roles. You, know, you, you have the, the woman who's very connected to, to nature and the man who's you know, working with tools. Um, is that something that you actively play with in the novel or is it just kind of there as a subtext? It's something that I definitely, it's not something that I like ever have people address like in terms of like pointing it out, but it's something that I definitely play with in terms of trying to undermine the stereotypes as much as I can and trying to kind of interrogate them and, and complicate them. I felt like, you know, there was definitely, when I was talking about this book with people early on, there was definitely the thing of, well, maybe the scientist should be the, 
the woman and the the witch should be the the guy and i definitely thought that there was a lot of validity to that in terms of like busting the stereotypes and and going in a in a direction that people didn't expect or people might not expect as much but i think that you know just the way the characters came to me i really liked patricia being the witch being the you know the the female character being the witch just because of a lot of the the ways that that shapes her character and um you know i think that basically what i did with that was first of all the characters are as far from the stereotypes as i can make them like Lawrence is definitely not a stereotypical geek guy. He's, you know, th- there were moments in earlier drafts where I sort of played with having him act more like a dude bro. And I just, it didn't ring true to the character. And it also just made me not like him anymore. So, <laughs> which is very actually, important as, as far from the, the sort of stereotype of the, the, the geek dude, or like, you know, the kind of male stereotypes of, of geekdom as you can get um, in a lot of ways. And Patricia, as well, you know, she's very angry and has a lot of, um, she's, she's not sort of a sensitive, touchy feely, new agey kind of person. And then meanwhile, the other thing that I did that I hoped helped to complicate that was that I surrounded Lawrence with female geeks. Like most of the geeks that Lawrence interacts with are women Mm. in the book. And, uh, ditto for Patricia. She's constantly interacting with male witches. Like most of them, witches that she spends time with are male or in one, one case, gender queer. Um, and there's also one or two female witches in the mix, but I felt like as long as the supporting cast kind of problematized or, 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 or at least, you know, complicated the, the gender roles, I could get away with it. But there was definitely something that I agonized about a lot because I did feel like I was playing into the stereotypes a little bit. And, um, it was something that I, I had in the back of my mind that I had to work against. And what were the challenges of combining these elements of science fiction and fantasy together? You talk a little bit about how genres interact. How how did these genres interact? Did you ever have to wrestle them into place or did you find that they fit together very easily? I think that um, there's a couple of things. First of all, um, I didn't want to have it be the sort of traditional magic versus science argument where you have like, you know, magic, no science, you know, is magic real? Are we like, which one is better? Uh, which one is, is a more valid worldview or any of that sort of thing? Generally, like, I don't think there's ever a scene in the book where anybody debates magic or versus science per se. I thought at one point of having like a funny bit where Lawrence and Patricia have a DJ contest where <laughs> he uses ma- science to try and be the best DJ and she uses magic to try and be the best DJ, but that never quite happened. But, um, I wanted it to be much more like seeing them work together in different ways. Like there are different times at which Lawrence has a problem that he's encountered through science and Patricia is able to help him using magic and vice versa. And I think it was interesting to look at them in terms of each of them having problems that they couldn't necessarily solve on their own, but that they might be able to solve together. And also, I guess, you know, to me, the, the, the hardcore thing of like, trying to combine mag- uh, magic and science in the book was, or science fiction and fantasy, I should say, was to make the science as as plausible as I possibly could while still making it sort of mad science. Mm-hmm. So it's not, you know, it's, it's not that Lawrence is sort of playing with CRISPR and doing like the kind of scientific experiments that someone might be doing in the real world. His science is still kind of a little bit fantastical or a little bit out there. But I spent a lot of time talking to scientists and, and experts trying to make all of the things that Lawrence does with science as plausible and as real as I could possibly make them and, you know, make them at least seem like they're connected to things that we actually know in science. And that way the magic could be more fantastical and that you have more of a contrast that way. Whereas what I found was if the science gets too kind of cartoony or too much like um, Jimmy Neutron boy genius kind of science um, – or just too much like techno babble and like I just turned on my shrinkotron and I shrank it or whatever. <laughs> right. um, then it just it looks starts to feel too much like magic because it's not really explained and it's not really something that you feel was arrived at through real scientific uh, exploration. And so to have that contrast feel meaningful, the science had to be as real as I could possibly make it. And the magic had to feel real in a different way. It had to feel connected to the real world in its own kind of sense and it had to feel like it had a real history and like people actually believed in it and had been around for a long time and there were if not like hard and fast rules at least a framework by which people understood it and a magical society and all that kind of stuff 
you know, early on when I sort of thought of this as more of just like a genres meeting kind of thing, the magic in my head was just going to be sort of, you know, could almost be a pastiche of like Harry Potter magic and like various other things. But the more I got into it, the more I was like, no, 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 the magic has to feel like it's something really real and solid that people have known about for a long time within the world of magic and that has like its own backstory and its own kind of um its own reality so how do you start from the present day um or something very like the present day with facebook and middle schools and so forth if magic's been there all along how how does that not change the world um until after we start meeting these characters that's a really um that's a really good question that's something that i thought about a lot and you know one of the things that bothers me in a lot of other stories about magic is why aren't they ruling the world or why haven't they, why isn't this an alternate history immediately as soon as they've got magic in it, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, sometimes it is an alternate history. Like if it's like we had dragons in the Napoleonic Wars or whatever, but I feel like if, if you have magic, the, you have to at least plausibly answer why history hasn't been massively different because of the existence of magic. And the thing that I came up with was basically that there are different factions within magic that have been reun- that have been united into one kind of cohesive society, but um, they've fought in the past about how much to influence the world, and they've put in place certain rules and certain kind of safeguards to make sure that nobody can just run wild and start changing everything. And basically, I kind of talk at one point in the book about the Industrial Revolution and how a certain group of magicians saw the Industrial Revolution happening and, you know, saw the skies over London turning, you know, dark gray or whatever, and thought we have to do something about this. We have to stop this. This is going to ruin everything. And then other magicians stepped in and said, no, you can't stop this. This is, we can't interfere. It's arrogance to try and change things on that level. And they actually almost had a magical war that was averted at the last minute. And I kind of go into that in the book and I, I do touch on that a bunch. And then there's the sense that, the same faction of magicians who wanted to stop the industrial revolution are looking at the world, you know, almost 200 years later and saying, well, the things that we said would happen if we didn't stop the industrial revolution have actually happened and things have gotten worse. And now it's almost too late, but we still have to do something. And and you get the sense that there's been this debate going on in the background the whole time. So uh, to bring in a science fictional thread, then they're basically arguing over the prime directive. A little bit, yeah. I mean, it's basically, yeah, it's it's about whether you should use your superior power to meddle in, in the affairs of other people. And also just whether, you know, these magicians know better than other people, whether they have the right to step in and decide what's best for everybody, kind of. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. I'm talking with Charlie Jane Anders, the author of All the Birds in the Sky, who's explaining uh, the fantastical and technological world that she set up for her book. So um, let's shift a little bit. You're also an editor at io9, where you are immersed in science fiction and fantasy and horror and every aspect of the speculative genres. Um, How does that inform your writing? It's really fun, actually. Like, I was worried at first that doing io9 would kind of get me stuck in this sort of bloggy writing voice all the time or that I would be unable to stop thinking like a snarky critic when it came time to do my own writing. But actually, the thing I found over the years at io9 is that I basically get paid to geek out about storytelling and to kind of uh, hash out what we like and what we don't like in stories and what works and what doesn't work and to just spend a lot of time kind of chewing over different stories that we've all read or seen or or whatever. And that actually turns out to be a lot of fun and has kind of, it's been like getting paid to go to grad school almost. Like I've learned so much about science fiction and fantasy 
in the time I've been doing IO9 that I feel like it's actually made me a much smarter, well, I don't know about smarter. It's definitely added to my knowledge base in terms of how things have been done in the genre in the past and how things are done now. And I think that it's something that's actually made me um, have a, like a different set of instincts when it comes down to do my own science fiction writing, which I've actually really, I feel like I've benefited from. I, I was reading the review that went up of uh, Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, which I think was your your review, and uh, there was a lot in there about how the movie didn't go far enough. It didn't it didn't buy in enough to the ridiculousness of its of its premise, and it sounds like that's a, a lesson that um, maybe was would have been valuable to apply to your book too. That to to make this work with. Uh, the magic and the technology uh, all coming together. You really have to buy in. You have to believe it yourself. I think that's true. Although, actually, I think that I have sort of the opposite approach to Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. Pride and Prejudice and Zombies is sort of on its face an absurd concept because there are certain things that happen in Jane Allison's story uh, that could not happen if there were zombies. There are things that make no sense once you add zombies to it. It actually kind of disrupts the narrative. At least I haven't read the book version. I've read Jane Austen's book, but not Seth Graham Smith's version. But there are certain things that happen in Pride and Prejudice and Zombies that are literally nonsensical because you can't actually have these events happening and have zombies wandering around. And it's sort of, it's kind of such a ridiculous concept that you have kind of no choice, I thought, but to just go full bore with the silliness um, and that's actually, to me, the pitfall of doing a, a genre mashup is that if you go into it self-consciously thinking of it as I'm going to take these different representatives of these different genres and sort of smush them together very self-consciously and play with them and keep all of their surface elements intact while you do that, you are going to end up with a genre pastiche most of the time because playing with all the surface elements and sort of self-consciously um, juxtaposing them in a in a kind of willfully silly way kind of leads to parody i think and i think that where pride and prejudice and zombies at least the movie version went wrong was that it didn't embrace the parody enough it kind of tried to straddle the fence between taking both of its constituent elements seriously and then also playing up the silliness at times and i feel like that was a, a balance that it ultimately could not strike in the case of all the birds in the sky i do go all in i do kind of embrace the genre elements as hard as I possibly can. But at the same time, I realized at some point during the writing of it that it, that if I go too much in the de direction of being self-consciously a genre mashup, if I try to like include things because they belong to the genre rather than because I need them in my story, um, then I will end up with a pastiche. And I didn't want that. I decided that wasn't what I wanted. And that, you know, for example, if Patricia's story is going to be kind of a play on Harry Potter and, oh, that means we need Voldemort. That means we need, we need Hagrid. We need, you know, she needs to have a pet owl or whatever. Uh, there needs to be weird jelly beans and stuff. Uh, the moment you start doing that kind of thing and being like, well, these are the things that come with that um, and we have to play around with them, then you are kind of in some sense creating a spoof versus saying, okay, it's a, she's a witch what does that actually mean to her? What is? How do we create a world in which that makes sense? How do we actually make her into a, a character who feels real in her own self? And she doesn't need a Hagrid or a Voldemort unless there's some real reason why they belong in the story, which in this case they didn't, so they're they're not there. So um, in this, in the case of your book, rather than having a, a Voldemort type figure uh, who's who's the big bad, it sounds like it's really that people are their their own worst enemies. There's a lot of that. Yeah. And I, you know, I played around with different ways of having villains in the book. And like I said, there was like an early draft where kind of you have this 10 year jump where Patricia, she's in middle school and then you meet her again and she's a grown up. And I thought of like, oh, what if while she was in high school, she actually defeated this evil, super powerful wizard who wanted to take over the world. And that could just be like a thing that happened in her backstory. And then maybe some of the other wizards want to bring back the evil wizard because they think that he or she can help, uh, solve the problems that they're having now. And that was something I toyed with a lot, but it just, it felt extraneous and kind of useless. And in general, apart from like one character in the first like hundred pages of the book, there aren't really any villains in this book. And that was partly because I really felt like the more I assigned some of the narrative 
developments in the book to an outside person, especially a villain type character, the less Lawrence and Patricia got to have their own agency and kind of make their own problems. And, you know, even more than them having to deal with other people who are well-meaning but misguided and create problems, I wanted the two of them to be kind of going around and actually um, causing the, the problems that they have to deal with because I felt like that was something that felt more real to me and also made them more interesting characters. See, now I want to read a whole essay from you on, on the problem of villains. I mean, this, this is, there sounds like there's so much buried in here in the idea of the villain, um, instead of creating opportunities for the heroes uh, or the protagonists, um, taking them away. Yeah, I wrote a short thing on Tor.com about villains a while ago, talking about this a little bit. I, I think that, I mean, I love a good villain. I love a villain who actually has a real arc and has like goals and ideas of their own. And I think that a villain can be fantastic. I also just think that um, it really, it's a different kind of story if you have a villain. It's more of an adventure story and more of a it's more about trying to figure out how to defeat this person. And that can be amazing if if you want to have something that's about sort of overcoming external obstacles. Um, I think that the more I got, the deeper I got into All the Birds in the Sky, the more I was like, this is a story about these two characters growing and figuring out who they really are. And having a villain ended up feeling kind of counterproductive. So, it, you know, now you're, you're talking about the growing. And, and to me, that's a very organic metaphor as opposed to maybe the, the hit it with a wrench and fix it kind of right. tech, tech side. So are, are you are you taking sides here? Are you taking Patricia's side over Lawrence's? I mean, I hope that in the end, it's not a matter of taking sides. I think that um, kind of part of what I try to get at in the book, and I, I actually did a talk about this a while ago that you can find called uh, The Paranoid Optimist. I feel like we need to reconcile this dichotomy between technology and nature and we need to reconcile it in a way that where neither side kind of quote unquote wins. I think that we need technology that is part of nature and that accepts that nature is, has an important role to play in our world and that that nature is in a sense part of us and that, you know, for us to use technology, we have to understand that us includes nature in some sense, if that makes any sense. Um, I think that we need to find a synthesis of those two ideas and that, you know, technology should be something that we think of as as part of the natural world as well, uh, and that we need to stop thinking of technology as just something that can be separate from nature, if that makes any sense. And and so to the extent that this book has a – I mean, I don't want this book to be like a polemic. And I, luckily, I don't think anybody who's read it so far has come away saying, wow, I really felt like you had an agenda in this book or I really felt like you – we're pushing some idea or other, but I feel like there's a, a not terribly subtle thing in the book where I do explore the notion of, of whether we can really see nature as something separate from ourselves and kind of very gently push the idea that we can't, that nature is not separate from us. And that in fact, um, nature is how we stay alive as humans. And that, um, that means that technology as something that we create also has to be part of nature. Um, so it's, it's, I, if, if people come away feeling like one side or the other has won or that one side or the other is right, I think that that means that I've probably failed. Well, I don't know that that's, uh, I'm, I'm certainly not saying that that's reflected in the book. I'm just, <laughs> right. I'm just, I'm pondering different, different metaphors. That's all. Yeah, um, no, absolutely. No, I wasn't, I'm not at all. I'm just saying, you know, I, I hope that people kind of come away with it having, I don't want them to come away feeling like I've given them an answer at all. I want them to come away feeling like they've gotten some stuff to think about hopefully, or that there have been some questions raised that, that they can kind of keep chewing over. No, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so what, what does the, what do you think the shape of the world might look like if if we found that marriage between technology and nature, if we saw all of it as sort of part of this single thing? I mean, I think that, you know, there would be more biotech. I think that we would have cities that were much more organic, that were grown more than built, that we would have, you know, structures that use natural processes rather than purely technological ones uh, in order to do things like heating and cooling a building or whatever. I think that 
we would start to let go of some of our more impractical notions, like the idea that every human needs to own their own motor vehicle and, and drive around all the time. Um, there's a lot of things that we came up with in the last century or two that were based on really short-sighted notions of, of what was possible you know, within the constraints of our planet and our own resources. And I think that we just need to start having an honest conversation with ourselves about whether we can continue to do those things. That's that's a lovely vision. I like the idea of, of growing cities, of planting the seed of a building. Yeah. And I, I think that, uh, I mean, we're going to need new ways to grow our food supply as well. And I think that, you know, there's been a lot of talk about cities that also include farms or vertical farms of some sort. I think that that would be awesome. I think that uh, we, we just need to, and we need to have greater density, but also density with green included. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and these are visions that have appeared in science fiction over the course of decades. And um, I, I love the idea of maybe getting back a little bit to um, something like the, the 1970s new wave vision uh, of 1980s where uh, you really could have have this uh, sense of organic technology uh, that's that's a vision that I feel like has been ebbing from science fiction for a long time and it's nice to see it come back yeah it's a super compelling vision like the idea of technology that includes organics is something that I find personally super compelling and I think that um, it's going to be more and more practical in this next century as we learn more about um, natural processes. I don't think it's something that's going to seem more far-fetched. I think it's something that's going to actually start to seem more realistic. And within the speculative genre, so are there any particular books that you feel like All the Birds in the Sky is kind of heir to? Yeah, I mean, there's a bunch. I think everything Le Guin wrote is something that I, I keep mm. very close to my heart. Also, I keep talking about this, but Doris Lessing. A lot of stuff in All the Birds of the Sky is basically lifted straight from Doris Lessing, especially her Martha Quest novels. It's kind of a shameless ripoff. Um, Doris Lessing wrote this, this five-book series that starts out, I think, almost purely autobiographical. And then at some point it goes forward into the near future and suddenly people have psychic powers and there's mutants and there's like a nuclear war and a bunch of other stuff happens and it gets more and more futuristic and weird in the final book. And that's something that I really love. And I feel like she pulled it off in a really beautiful way. I think there's a lot of, there's a, certainly a, a lot of stuff where I'm very heavily influenced by Vonnegut in this book. Um, and again, the words shameless ripoff could be used, I think. Uh, I think that the most shameless ripoff is of, of Lessing, though. And it's nice to be reminded that Lessing is a science fiction writer for all that she's been claimed by the, the mainstream. Yeah, and unlike certain other people that I could name, she never rejected that label. <laughs> she went to Worldcon. She wrote the Shikasta books, which were pure science fiction. She was very keen to embrace it. Mm. Well, that's lovely. I love the idea of somebody, uh, I guess, remembering that within the genre and and continuing to overtly build on her work. Yeah, I mean, I read Doris Lessing when I was, at, I guess, in my late teens originally, and I just got completely hooked. And, you know, I have like a giant shelf of all her books. I actually haven't read everything she wrote because she was so prolific. But she's one of those authors who just continues to like have a huge influence on me. Like The Golden Notebook is one of the best books I've ever read, probably in my top 10. I mean, definitely in my top 10, The Golden Notebook. And she has several other books. The Good Terrorist is incredible. Like, especially in this day and age when there's so much talk about terrorism, The Good Terrorist is actually a fantastic, um, super valuable look into that psychology. Uh, she's just, she was a phenomenal author. Well, I really hope that you inspire other people to seek out her work and maybe look at it from a new perspective. Yeah, I hope so, too. I've been talking with Charlie Jane Anders. You can find her book, All the Birds in the Sky, in stores right now. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been lovely to chat with you. This is my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Senior News Editor Calvin Reed tells us what's hot in Havana's book scene. Stay tuned. I'm Tim Dorsey, author of Coconut Cowboy, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. 
Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. And today, PW Senior News Editor Calvin Reed is here to tell us all about the Havana Book Fair. Hi, Calvin. Buenos dias. Hello. It's <laughs> very nice to, to see you here. Um, you've got a tan. and well, uh, <laughs> I guess, well, my base has been inc- <laughs> Im- improved upon, yes. <laughs> um, so tell us, how, how did you end up going to Cuba? How did this I mean, it still sounds very... It's... Uh, Bizarre to say that someone just went to Cuba. We're yeah. not we're not even used to that yet. It's, so. Well, it's really been an extraordinary experience, uh, and I I, I I I would love to give. Uh, I want to give a little background. Sure. And I, um, um, this is the 25th annual um, uh, uh, Havana Book Fair, uh, an extraordinary event that takes place in Cuba. Um, um, special shout out to uh, Kevin Breyerman, our executive uh, VP and publisher. Uh, and John Malinowski, uh, the president of Combined Book Exhibit, uh, for those of you who don't know, they manage book space at book fairs around the world. I mean, I, as I understand it, uh, when you sign up to exhibit, um, you you often deal with them mm-hmm. who have all the context with the foreign um, vendors and far as fixtures and a lot. And they manage a huge numbers of space at every book fair around the world. And they have a, a history of being on the scene early for new territories. And by any measure, Cuba is a fascinating place for American publishers, uh, really for Americans, really for almost mm-hmm. anybody in the world. Um, uh, so how, do, how did Publishers Weekly become involved in this? Well, um, uh, as the story as was told to me, um, a, an old friend... Um, of John Malinowski and his sister Janet Fritch, who run the company, who actually runs a Cuban travel agency called uh, Cultural Island Travel, they got an email sometime around last year's BEA saying had I think it had four words on it: uh, Cuba, Havana Book Fair, and the wheels started turning from there. Right. Uh, That's from, enough. Yeah, yeah. Um, who wouldn't be intrigued by a message like that? Uh, John uh, got in touch with Kevin and said, let's see what we can find out. Uh, that prompted a bunch of emails between Cultural Island Travel. Um, and eventually, and as Kevin tells the story, and I, I apologize, Kevin, for stealing your thunder. Uh, he tells it much better than I do. He and, and John decided to, um, to, on a leap of faith, let's go to Cuba. Let's see if there's a, a possibility of bringing uh, a contingent, an official contingent from of, of American publishers, book published to, to Cuba. Within the context that, of course, business dealings between Americans and and Cuba is, you know, is illegal under the um, uh, the, the trade embargo. Right. Uh, and you're going to be, and I'll talk a little bit more about that later. There's much discussion of the trade embargo or the blockade, as the Cubans call it. Mm-hmm. So as Kevin tells the story, they basically went down there after some exchange and um, working through cultural and travel, which has a lot of contacts in the government. You know, there was some interest in a meeting, but there was nothing, you know, as you get down here, you find look, this is a socialist bureaucracy. Things don't always move the way Americans expect things to move. So they went down there on a prayer. They had not had any commitment to have a meeting with anyone, but they just said, what the hey? You know, this is too big an opportunity to not really at least push it. As it turns out, when they arrived in Havana, not only did they have a meeting, they had a meeting, all of the highest officials at the Cuban Book Institute. And the Book Institute, uh, very briefly, is uh, really part of the Cuban bureaucracy that oversees the book market. As far as I understand it, the, you know, they they generate all the statistics about the, uh, the Cuban book uh, and publishing environment, and they work under the Cuban Ministry of Culture, mm-hmm. which has different bure- bureaus for really every area of the arts and culture. Through them, they met an extraordinary group of people and at this juncture, I just want to say what I arrived uh, to see as a rookie, uh, and, and I joined up with both Kevin, John, uh, his sister Janet, and their support staff, and the staff of Cultural Island Travel. Amazing people who are there as a business, but once you get to know them, and once you get to Cuba and see uh, them working with the Cubans, you realize that this is a calling, this is a... There's an experience that is more than just business. 
their their um, embrace of the Cuban culture and the Cuban people is organic and whole and inspirational. Hmm. And at the end of the day, uh, what they put together really was uh, the the support staff and Kevin with Publishers Weekly is a cultural mission. And uh, thanks to the uh, recent opening and the sort of thaw between relations between the Cuban government uh, and the U.S., thanks to President Obama, uh, was it a, a month or two ago he announced, and as, as I uh, noticed early this morning after my arrival back from Cuba, um, President Obama announced that he will be going to Cuba very shortly. Uh, apparently, PW beat President Obama. <laughs> you paved the way. To... It, what what they were able to do, and, and and I can't emphasize this too much, and you know, call it tooting our own horn if you want to, but it's absolutely true. Uh, we were able to organize a really ha- an historic event. There has never been an official delegation of American publishers at the Vanna Book Fair, and it's twenty five years old. Um, now, that does not mean that there have been haven't been the occasional American publisher there or American author. Uh, in fact, I know for a fact that Pathfinder. The Socialist Press has been there. In fact, was down there um, while I was down there. And I had to talk with these guys and some of the editors there. In fact, Osborne Hart, who I know is an editor there. uh, He's also running for president of the Socialist Workers Party line, should you uh, be interested in that part of the deal. We had to talk about his, his involvement with the show. But this was really the first official visit of Americans down there on a cultural mission. And we brought over 600 titles by about 40 American and and some British publishers. Um, And we set up the American Book Exposition. We had a booth uh, in the fair. Now, where the fair was hosted, let me tell you, uh, this was not an American convention center. This was not the Javis Center. This was a 16th century fortress that dates to the beginnings of Cuba. Um, it is a museum and vast and overwhelming structure that sits sort of, you know, on a hill above and surrounding sort of part of the city. It's absolutely breathtaking. Uh, it's lined with cannons. It looks like a medieval fortress. Uh, and indeed, it is a fortress. It's even got a moat around it. I mean, but that, you know, there's no water in it, but it's a huge, you know, opening between the actual land and the actual structure. Uh, but what they've done is they've modernized it. It's got electricity and power, uh, and the all of the exhibit booths. It's a sprawling structure, and and it's so situated so uh, in such a way that when you when you're up on the top of it and you're on one of the main plazas, the city is spread below you uh, in a most breathtaking. The city and the harbor, uh, it's absolutely breathtaking. You can see the Malecon, the incredible. Um, Roadway that circles the bay and the ocean. Uh, you, we have to ride across it every day. It's sort of amazing. Even when the the waters are calm, the waves crash against the seawall. It's so dramatic you can't even bear it. <laughs> wow! Um, at every step of the way, this this trip to Cuba has been inspirational and you know pragmatic. And it's been you know um, you know a slog and kind of breathtaking. I mean, it's it, it's all wrapped up into one. Um, stop me if I ramble. No, no, this is this is all fascinating. Obviously, I've never been to Cuba, like most of our listeners, I expect, and um, it's lovely to get a sense of the place and and what it's like to be there. It was amazing. So we arrived, um, and by by we I mean uh, the the but the U.S. side staff of um, uh, Combined Book Exhibit, Kevin and myself, and we flew down there. I believe it was last Wednesday. Um, we to get the books, and we're talking about over 600 books. They were packed in about 18 suitcases, and through one way or another, I'm not quite sure how they got them to Miami, but I know exactly how we got them from Miami and our hotel to uh, Havana. We picked them up and carried them to vans. The vans took them to the airport, and and thanks to a deal with Havana Airways or Havana Air, I should say, which is the kind of the, the charter group that manages commercial flights between Miami uh, and Havana now, which has picked up, obviously, since cultural missions, because of the opening of cultural missions uh, in a more blatant way, uh, American tourism has, is, is on, the, on the rise big time. So we, we lugged the bucks over to the, um, over to the airport, got them on the plane. They had a deal with Havana Air. 
I, I don't want to say it was free, but there was some sort of deal to get the books into the country. And they brought him over, and it was a combination of uh, hard work, uh, determination to, to get it done despite the, the, um, the bureaucracy. There, look, let's face it, the Cuban government it, it, it was very in, enthusiastic about us coming, but uh, the bureaucracy there is real. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you sit, and mm-hmm. you sit, and you sit. And, you know, you have to be tolerant and uh, good things generally happen, though you have to wait a while for them to do so. That said, we got the books to the fortress. Um, um, We overcame various problems of logistics and power and the like. Also, I should say, uh, all of this took place uh, without any Wi-Fi, any kind of consistent Wi-Fi. You can get at the hotels. You have to pay to get a Wi-Fi card, half hour an hour. They don't cost much, but nothing is easy when it comes to getting on the internet. Right. Phone service was spotty for some carriers, uh, worked well for others. Uh, I had the, my particular carrier didn't work. So I had no cell phone or internet access in any kind of consistent way for the first time in a long time. And it's let me tell you, like, like the old days. Yeah. Uh, first world problem, I know. But you know <laughs> what? Once you're hooked on that thing, it's hard to, to realize how difficult it is to function without it. But you know what? You do. You do. So, uh, and I don't want to bog down with a lot of um, logistical stuff. Suffice it to say that we got the exhibit up, we got the books up, uh, and we uh, and then what happened next was throngs of Cubans looking for books. Uh, I should also say part of the team on the Cuban side that met us was is the Cuban Book Institute, which I, I think I described a little bit earlier. They included, and I really need to, to point them out, uh, because these people were very extraordinary. Uh, they were very candid in their criticisms of the Cuban publishing industry during our our, our panels, and I should say, PW organized a number of panels down there. We had panels that took place at the Fortress, uh, that in some ways were they were also professional panels, but we also organized two days of professional panels offsite at the uh, at the Memories Miramar Hotel, which is off the site of the fair, uh, and that was by invitation only, uh, and it was American publishers in the U.S. publishing mission, really doing a doing an overview of the American publishing industry for the Cubans, and in turn uh, on on Monday actually the cube there were panels with Cubans telling us about the Cuban publishing industry. Mm-hmm. On Tuesday, I moderated a day-long series of panels uh, of American professionals talking about every aspect of American book publishing. Well attended, lots of questions, and just wonderful enthusiasm. Now, another signature event, uh, absolutely historic. Um, Publishers Weekly and Combined Book Exhibit signed a Memorandum of Understanding with the Cuban Book Institute to continue their talks and works and um, and collaborations uh, as far as bringing American publishers to the Havana Book Fair to continue that commitment in the future to continue to bring American publishers uh, to Havana but also work to bring both uh, Cuban publishers and ultimately hopefully authors to the U.S. for Book Expo and to continue to work collaboratively uh, to foster relations between American publishing and Cuban publishing. Obviously, the whole outline of this is to lay the groundwork for business dealings uh, for American publishers to be able to publish Cuban offers in the States and vice versa. This, of course, um, is all dependent on Congress and whether they will lift the trade embargo, or at the very least, lift it as far as cultural products are concerned. Right. And one of the things that was much discussed uh, in Cuba, uh, among the American publishers who were there, uh, was a grassroots effort among the publishing professionals to work and to continue talking about building a a petition uh, of some kind, um, hopefully to involve both the AAP, and like I said, these are preliminary talks, nothing has been decided, as well as Publishers Weekly, uh, to help organize the publishing industry to basically do this debt, to ask for, uh, to formally approach Congress about lifting the trade embargo, or the blockade, as the Cubans call it, 
uh, or at the very least, lifting the embargo on cultural materials. So this is something that we're going to have continuing talks about in the coming weeks. Um, uh, the um, executive director of, excuse me, the CEO of the AAP, Tom Allen, a former congressperson, um, he did, uh, we were informed, he had introduced legislation at some point when he was in Congress to lift the trade embargo, and we're hoping to approach him and approach AAP about taking a leadership position in this. But what I've been receiving since I've been home, about 24 hours, are emails from so many of the publishers really talking about how ins- uh, inspirational this visit was, seeing the Cuban people, talking with Cuban publishers, hopefully laying the groundwork for um, just a bigger involvement in the in the uh, Cuban publishing industry when uh, going forward. Wow. Well, what an exciting opportunity um, for for everybody involved. And uh, I hope that in a year or two, you're coming back to give us more reports from future Havana book fairs and telling us how that's all coming along. You and me both. We let that. We'll, we hope to have a lot more to report on Cuban publishing in the in the in the very near future. Excellent. Well, we'll we'll keep in touch about that. And uh, always great to have you on the show. And great to be here. And now a final word from our sponsors. Hi, I'm Tom Hart, the creator of the book Rosalie Lightning, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another delectable author interview, and we'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcasts on iHeartRadio and iTunes, and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 